This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Whatever is possible to be prevented should be prevented, but it's not going to be prevented using just the technologies that we've used yesterday. We have to start participating in these crowd-based approaches that allow each of us to contribute our health expression in a science-based way that can be um, collected and explored across masses. Welcome to FemPower Health, Georgie here. About one in eight American women will develop breast cancer in her lifetime. And even with the advocacy and the medical advancements that have been made, of course, this is still a concern. And so I'm pleased to bring to you today, Anna Daly and Dr. Brigetta Piniuski, who are going to talk about a new innovation leveraging the science of tears for an at-home breast health assessment. And we will talk about why this is so important, not only for breast cancer, but our overall health. So let's hear what Anna and Dr. Paniewski have to say. Hello, Anna and Brigetta. Welcome to the FemPower Health Podcast. It's so nice to, to have you both here today. And This is such an exciting conversation because one of the things I've seen in women's health, well, all of healthcare, is a lot needs to be changed. And what's great now is we have so many tools and technology that can help us have better data to personalize the experience. So we know theoretically that that's needed, but we still have a long ways to go. And today we're here to talk about a really interesting technology, which is using the science of tears. And so this is uh, especially um, when it comes to diagnosing cancer. And so I'm really excited to have you guys share all of your expertise and, and what we all need to know about this. But I thought before we dive right in, why don't you both give yourself a given introduction about yourselves, and then we can dive right into the conversation. So Anna, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I'm Anna Daly. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer with Namita Lab. I am a PhD biochemist and I've spent my career working in breast cancer and breast health and developing um, tests for screening and, and um, diagnostic technology for breast cancer and tear-based proteins. Okay. Brigetta. Hello, everyone, and thank you, Georgie, for having us. My name is Brigitte Paneski. I'm a physician by trade. I spent many years in reproductive health and uh, eventually wound up being chief medical officer for one of the largest reference labs in the Pacific Northwest. This led me further into work working with startups and helping investors understand what's investable and what's not in the healthcare space. That moved us more and more into uh, Web3 technologies, data, ownership economy, and the types of things that you were talking about in the beginning, Georgie, where we do need to get to this place of personalized medicine, but we need to understand and make use of the tools more effectively. 
And that has, um, you know, really made me excited about Namita Lab and what Anna's doing, because it's one of the more important ways in which women can take control of their health intelligence that's specific to them and provide insights uh, in ways that wasn't possible previously. No, absolutely. And I was reading uh, and prepping, one of you had sent me an article that was published on LinkedIn around a linkage between hair straighteners and uterine cancer. Wow. So I don't know if um, either one of you wants to expand on that. Cause I first, I, I always like to hit it home on in the beginning on why someone needs to listen to the entire episode. And so I think that's like a, holy cow, we need to learn more. So, so tell us more about that finding and how that came about shedding light on the importance of data. Well, I think the important message there is it, it took 11 years and almost 400 women suffered with um, uterine cancer in uh, the old scientific method that takes you know a long time. And I think women are understanding that science is great, but it didn't work for my mother and it might not have worked for my sister. And so we're looking for more of important ways of actually rolling up our sleeves and participating in the creation of the science that matters to us personally, but will also benefit our sisters and future generations in ways that wasn't possible previously. Absolutely. Those are key key takeaways. So speaking of cancer, and we, we this I wouldn't say that that was a myth, but I, I do think it's important to start with some of the myths around cancer that still exist today. Originally, we used to think of cancer as an on-off diagnosis. Either you, you know, you spent most of your life not having cancer, and then oh gosh, it might happen that you were suddenly diagnosed as if it happened or dropped out of the sky. Now you have cancer because of a screening test or a, a medical test that was done in some way. And the and the thought for many individuals was that this is the result of you know bad family history and then some other culprits like radiation, toxic air pollution, smoking, and other things. But today that understanding has really evolved quite differently. You know, gone is this on-off hypothesis. Quite simply said, you know, uh, each of us is made up of billions of cells and our cells actually turn over on a regular basis. There is a constant sort of rip and replace. Old cells are taken away and new cells are replaced. Most of this time, especially when we're young, this model works really well and the new cells work perfectly and even more effectively than, than the old cells. What we're finding, though, as we age, that more and more we're getting small mistakes happen in this process. At the end of the day, uh, our immune system is responsible for finding these small mistakes, correcting them, and ensuring that we can go on you know, with life as previously. But occasionally, our immune system is insufficient, and these mistakes carry on and they replicate and they start to create clusters of cells. And then these clusters of cells take on a size that become a tumor. And then these tumors interfere with the other processes that are happening around them. The sadness of all of this is that our bodies actually don't tell us that any of this is happening. And so we've had to use technology to allow us to figure out and find these mistakes on behalf of, you know, helping out our immune systems, hopefully in time before they get too large and become too difficult to correct. 
And so this old model of, you know, on off is gone, this constant ebb and flow of of cellular health throughout our body is the way we now understand cancer. We have, um, you know, hundreds, thousands of women being diagnosed with cancer every day. Well, not every day, but every year in the U.S. And uh, many are not being diagnosed with cancer. And it's being, it's the part of lots of different things taking root at the same time. Before, it would have been too difficult for science to figure all of this out. Mm -hmm. But now we have the possibility using crowd-based approaches to start to really understand what are the contributors to cancer, how can we manage these on a regular basis, and how can we use evidence-based ways of avoiding cancer for ourselves and each other. Okay. Today, we're going to speak specifically about breast cancer. Before we go into that, did you have anything else you wanted to speak to around cancer overall? Uh, just just really emphasize this sort of balance yep. between that ebb and flow of uh, cellular health and the immune system, and that it's important that we pick up cancer, hopefully as closely as possible to the time at which it's broken out of control of your own immune system. We would hate to put people, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, some of the treatments, chemo, radiation, surgery, these are very aggressive therapies yeah. for cancers that might have been um, dealt with by our own immune systems. So there is this balance that we have to figure out. Okay, interesting. So walk us back to when cancer, breast cancer really became a medical concern. So that dates back to the 70s when our first real um, medical screening modality came, and that was the mammography route. And women were recommended to have annual mammography because with um, breast tissue, that when the cells are behaving abnormally, we see that the tissue, uh, the immune system starts to deposit calcium. And calcium can be seen with radiographic film. And these calcium deposits show up as speckles. And these white speckles can be detected using mammography prior to actually waiting for a mass to grow large enough to be able to palpate it. And with that, mm. um, regular mammography became the practice. Um, there was a study in cancer detection and prevention in 2007 that kind of walked through the history of mammography. And when we think about, um, you know, as Brigetta said, in the early days, in the 70s, normally you only went in if you felt something. And so about... 4% of breast cancers were detected at the time by mammography. Um, then when they really started implementing it as a standard of practice, and this is back when they did film mammography, so they were you know, reviewing um, film specifically, and they caught about 40% of cancers. And we've all heard about the transition from film to digital, from 2D to 3D mammography. So there has been all of these technological advances in mammography, and still to date, we catch about 60% of breast cancers by mammogram alone. So about two thirds of breast cancers are caught by mammography. The other third are um, usually caught by someone who you feel a mass. Um, and probably that's someone um, who may be under the age of 40 or may not, may not be screening, or they have what are called interval cancers. So interval cancers, and that rate assists about 10% of cancers are called interval. So that's if you've gone for a screening, and then you feel something before you get to your next screening. So within okay. that year, that's turned an interval cancer. So 
you know, right now mammography is our, our gold standard um, and the best way to, to catch screen, to catch breast cancer early is to screen. And we sit around 60% of those cancers. So since about 2003, that number hasn't changed. We're hitting about 60% of cancers are caught by screening mammography. We are missing a lot, right? What would you say then are these pitfalls right now in the screening approaches? Just in general, uh, it's actually quite difficult to ensure that most women are getting the mammograms as recommended. I think um, it's something like 54% of women that qualify for a screening mammogram actually have that mammogram take place. And of course, that has to do with all the complications of health as and healthcare as we know it today. Some women aren't covered. Uh, there are gaps in care. There is the busy life of a, of a woman and her family and, and many other um, contributors to just even the fact that mammography exists. It's not happening uh, as easily and as effectively as we would like it to. Of course, the other issue is that um, mammography includes radiation. We don't want to do that too often. Uh, there, there is um, a big problem with the fact that we're looking for white speckles, and white speckles are easily camouflaged by white lines, and white lines are a hallmark of dense breasts. And uh, so that, that makes it difficult as well. The concern over radiation is a big one for for pitfalls. Um, you know, we're gonna really hit a lot of them. But again, you know, we also one of the big challenges for women is we try to navigate this and figure out the guidelines can really be all over the place depending on you know what your family history is, how old you are. You know, there's some confusion about how often we we really do need to go because different different countries do different things different within our own country different um, governing bodies have differing recommendations on how old you are and when you should start. Do you go every year? Do you go every other year? And then we throw in, you know, in the U.S., in our healthcare system, we're dealing with large payers. So, um, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act, I believe, last year decided they only cover every other year. Um, so if you're over 50 and you're used to going every year, then all of a sudden now you're only covered every other. So there's all these different factors that can make it difficult to know when, you know, if I want to do the best thing for my health and for my family, but it can be really difficult to figure out what that is. And so, you know, I think that's a, a challenge and a pitfall as well. And not, and then we throw in, you know, this dense breast issue, which is 50% of women have dense breast tissue. Then we don't have really good consent guidelines. There's not a consensus yet on, what you should do if you have dense breast tissue and what we should tell women and what we offer them. So, you know, I think it's a, an area where women really want to do something. They want to, you want to take control and, and make a difference and make sure they're doing what's good for themselves, but it can often be very difficult to figure out what those steps are. And I think that can be a big pitfall. You know, you're right. It's it's funny. I'm actually thinking of a couple of things. Once, one, there's a, this mom's group we get together where the entrepreneurial moms in my cute little local town. And we started, because since I do this podcast, we'll sometimes talk about some of the topics that I'm, I'm doing. And um, I don't think we'd booked this interview yet, but somehow the topic of um, maintaining our health came up and a few of the moms fessed up that they have never had a mammogram because they're too busy with their career and taking care of their kids. And they actually did say, if at my pediatrician's office, I could get a mammogram or get a pap smear, I would do it. Right. But 
I don't have time, so I just don't. And I almost fell over because I'm, I guess, just growing up in healthcare, and I'm such a rule follower. I'm like, I'm gonna like, you know, get a detention if I don't get my mammogram. So I, I just go. But I have dense breasts, and now they started doing an ultrasound. But it was only a few years ago they recommended it, and it's not like my breasts mm-hmm. changed. I don't think this was before I even had my son. But it's not covered. It's unbelievably frustrating. I guess I just thought because it's cancer and it's so specialized and like death is a big thing that can happen if we do not take care of it. I had also thought that the entire healthcare system had organized itself properly to take care of patients and be proactive. And then once someone is diagnosed, have a perfect system in place to save these lives. And I mean, as we're starting to talk about here and what I'm seeing with my clients, it's wow. So thank you for um, for being inventive and trying to come up with some a solution here. But um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, if people have questions around, are, are there more cancers being detected? Is the incidence declining? Where does family history fall into play? What do we know? Well, as Anna said earlier, you know, we, we're sort of still doing the same thing as we've been doing for decades to some degree. The uh, rate, population rate started out as sort of one in nine. Now we're at one in eight. It's been one in eight for decades for okay. women. And yet only, um, you know, less than 15% of women have a family history necessarily with that's associated with breast cancer. You know, the surveillance um, epidemiology and end result cancer statistics review, I just like to compile this information. And so if you were looking from 1975 to 2017, as Brigetta said, the risk in the 70s was about, you know, it was under 10 percent. Um, then we got up to around one and eight. So that's 12 percent. And that now we're shifting to almost 13 through so like 12.8 percent. The other big number that we're seeing is in in the past, the number of women under the age of 40 to have breast cancer was about 6%. And if you speak to, and we don't have any firm data yet on what that number is, but if you speak to radiologists, they will tell you hands down, they're seeing more women under the age of 40 coming in and being diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's often, um, you know, they're often more aggressive and more terminal diseases at that point. So you know, I think our population risk overall is not declining. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, we could get into a lot of factors on why we think that is, but I think that we're probably going to be seeing that number, you know, not to be scary, but part of it is because we are, we do have better screening. We do have more people that are participating, but then there's a lot more environmental, environmental factors. You know, when we talk about hair straighteners and uterine cancer and all of the things we put on and in our bodies and how that is affecting, you know, how our immune systems react. And so I think we're going to continue to see that risk um, increase a little bit over time as we move forward. And so all of these dis- discussions around our environment, it's no joke. I mean, you've shared the data. We used to think of cancer as hitting us in our retirement age. And now yeah. more and more, this is hitting women with young families in the workforce and really disrupting their lives in ways that are what we would call unacceptable. You know, If there's an opportunity to prevent or to redirect this how come it's been decades and we still haven't really managed to deliver a quality program that women deserve? Yeah, no, absolutely. Is there anything else besides the environmental factors and family history wanted to just touch on as far as um, contributing to poor breast health? 
So I think uh, the way they usually separate the contributors are those that you can control and those you can't. And we've talked about the ones that we can't, which is um, family history and, of course, age, talking about age as uh, waning of the immune system. And then the ones that we can control, I think this is where the huge opportunity is. And, and the big message here is there are hundreds of them, but the our ability to sort of separate out what matters most for which individuals at what time has always been a challenge given the way, um, you know, traditional scientific methods work. And that's why we need to move to more of a... Um, self-controlled model where women can contribute in a crowd-based manner to create health intelligence that's relevant for themselves, their uh, colleagues, as well as future generations. And when you talk about this crowd-based model, again, because I've had the um, fortune of, one, interviewing tons of femtech companies and being in this space almost on a daily basis, but also reading your LinkedIn article and other research, tell us what this means about getting crowd-based technology and how that can help the population overall, plus even an individual woman. Well, I think this is where home-based technology is really you know, take precedent. And, and perhaps we can start there with um, Anna sharing some of her background with respect to developing the ARIA test and how it works in the household and the home. Sure. So um, ARIA is a at-home breast health assessment test. So uh, customers can order the kit off of our website and it comes home to you. And, and we Obviously, you know, we've kind of touched on reasons why a home test is really advantageous for women, not underlying our, our busy schedules. You know, we're often dealing, raising kiddos, ha- handling older parents. I mean, there's just tons of things that we are doing. And so scheduling another appointment, obviously, as we've discussed, can be extremely difficult. And so this way, the kit comes to you. Um, it has everything that you need to collect and ship your tier sample back to us to our lab. So we have a high complexity CLIA lab. We're in, in here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, we will run your sample and then your results are available to you on your customer portal and you can review those. And then at the time that you receive your results, you also receive a link to schedule a consultation. And so um, one of my favorite parts of what we do is we have breast health specialists. And so these are um, RNs and uh, we have an RN who's getting ready to be an APN. She's almost done with that process. And then some sonographers who have spent their careers in breast health. So they've done everything from walk you through a screening mammogram to walk you through your cancer journey. And so they are very well versed in breast health. And oftentimes I think we all know when you're dealing with breast health, it's often an in and out procedure and you get sometimes get a letter in the mail we often don't get a good time to ask questions. And so this is your time and you can ask about your ARIA result, how to utilize that result. And you also, so speaking to the crowd-based part of it, we have a breast health and a, um, a quick health survey that you fill out that the specialists have access to. And we do that for a lot of reasons. And one is to, you know, we're really interested in starting this community around breast health as we move forward with Arian, as we have more women take the test and we get more information, then we are able to optimize the test results and then moving towards this idea of your own personalized breast health threshold that you can build on. With that, with having these breast health specialists be able to review your, your breast health survey, 
you know, we did that for a lot of reasons. And one of them being, you know, they can pick things up that may be a red flag to them that may not be a red flag to you. Um, or maybe something that somebody has brought up before, but now we all need to be hit with things multiple times. And so this is just another opportunity for them to say, hey, you know, we see that you're, maybe you're a smoker, maybe you're, you're, BMI is a little high, you know, those can, those can be factors. And uh, maybe you had a family history that you think is irrelevant, but actually is pretty relevant. So, you know, we like to have that extra layer of, of having these, these women be able to discuss breast health um, with people who really know it. And they're genuine women. They are really excited about ARIA and about the opportunity to have more conversations because they have seen, you know, what happens when, when people don't screen. Um, and so, you know, we have the kit that comes to you with your test result. You have your opportunity for a rest health specialist. And then we're building a, a wellness community, a health and wellness community with tips on health and wellness specific to breast health. And so we talk about things that you might, easy things that you might want to remove. Um, so we talk a lot about endocrine disruptors, so things that we put on and in our skin and our bodies and what the effect they can have on breast health. Important things you can add, add the fighters. So fiber, cruciferous vegetables, you know, what we are all bombarded with supplements. And so what are some really, what ones did we really need to take and think about for breast health? And so we have a health and wellness specialist who spent her early career in breast health. And so that's sort of the, the, the all encompassing part of ARIA is we're not just a test. We're really, you know, we are our consultation. We are building a community. And so we really want to build out this idea Science of Tears, how did this even come about and how did you figure out that that can also help with diagnosing and detecting breast cancer? And I guess we should also talk about is it diagnosing or detecting and what the difference is, all those nuances. So I want to walk through that yes. whole journey, but first let's just, let's really like catch up on Science of Tears. What? <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So Tears themselves have been studied as a diagnostic fluid for decades. There's been a lot of global work around using tears. And so the idea that we talk about is um, tears are tears and blood, which blood is our traditional diagnostic fluid. So tears and blood are two sides of the same picture. So tears are a filtered product of blood. And so we're looking at proteins that have transfused back and forth or moved back and forth between the blood vessels on the inner surface of the eye. And so the early, early academic work on this was done um, at a medical school here in Arkansas by uh, Suzanne Klimberg, who's a surgical oncologist specializing in breast um, and saw some of the early tier research in other fields and was interested just to see if you could even see a difference and started to did some very early work with her patients. I started in 2011 and so did the process of learning to collect tears identifying all of the proteins we could see using a particular technique and then figuring out which proteins were the most um, important. And so that's, that kind of leads us to answer your question around, are we diagnosing or are we screening? So the proteins that we look at are part of, part of the early inflammatory process that are in the tissue getting ready for some, some sort of breast abnormality formation. So we do see them in breast cancer. We also see them in benign masses as well. So we are a screening technology. We are not diagnosing breast cancer at this time. We are saying there is some sort of breast abnormality occurring in your tissue and you need to go in and have that tissue examined to figure out, is it something completely benign or is it something you need to have looked at further? So that's, that's where we fit and that's sort of how tears are 
a really advantageous fluid to do this because we can get to these biomarkers. So we're looking at protein biomarkers and they're quite small and blood has a lot of components in it. We have antibodies, we have cells, you know, all kinds of things, which are very useful. But when you're working in the protein size that we want to look at, you can have to do a lot of processing. And so tears just provide a really nice, clean, easy fluid, easy to collect and easy to look at in the lab and get to those protein biomarkers quickly. How do you collect tears? Because when I think tears, I'm thinking crying. So right. is it easy to like, do I have to make myself cry? And a part of me is like chuckling because this is like a very serious, important topic, but I'm kind of laughing. Like, how, how does this like work? Do I need to watch a sad movie? Like I'm imagining I'm <laughs> myself getting this kit and I'm like, what do I do? Um, so, so that's one. I, I'm not trying to poke fun, but I'm genuinely like, giggling over how I'm going to do this. And then the other is, I know that um, especially the early at-home tests were around hormones. And, you know, I saw all the press when those started to come out where it's, you know, you can't do this at home. Um, They're not valid. The only way it works is if you get blood sample in the lab, blah, blah, blah. And so everyone had their own views on that. And so at first, I'd love to ask the question of how, and then how valid is it because it's done at home and there could be errors and questions about the validity of tears, all that good stuff? So how? Um, we use a, um, a Shermer strip. So a Shermer strip is a thin pizza filter paper. It's what they used to use to test for dry eye. And so it um, feels a little bit, so you place it inside your lower eyelid and close your eye. The action of having something in your eye obviously causes your eye to water. Really what we're collecting is the proteins on the inner surface of the eyelid. They stick to that paper. And then that you remove that paper, you place it into a tube with buffer and that sends to our lab. And during the shipment process, the proteins come off the strip and into the buffer and we actually collect, we, we test the fluid itself. Um, and so it feels a little bit, depending on the dryness level of your eyes, it typically to me, it kind of feels like an eyelash in your eye for a little bit. Normally once the end of the paper gets wet, that feeling goes away. It just, it just kind of depends on your eye biology. Really. When we think about, you know, at home testing, I think, um, you know, we all refer, but COVID really paved the way to understand how to take tests at home. And so we kind of piggybacked off of that knowledge of people learning how to properly do an at-home test. We did quite a lot of testing internally, um, different stages of testing. First, we had people come into our office and we gave them instructions on how to collect a tear sample. And then we let them, we watched as, as they read the instructions and then collected their own sample. And then we tested them to, to test validity. And then we did a series where we sent kit, kits home and had people collect samples and send back. So we did quite a lot of testing to ensure that tears could uh, safely and effectively be collected at home and we could have validity of results. So we have quite a bit of data backing that process up as well. Have you had feedback or done research or have any commentary around the I don't want to know the results community. So I could imagine one just not wanting to know results generally and not wanting to be proactive, but they're probably the ones not getting even the mammograms for the I don't have time. I could definitely see, you know, this being like, holy cow, thank you so much. You've saved my life. You've saved my my day. But because this is a detection and it could signal going to the doctor's office, a need to go to the doctor's office. Could there be, 
it's not fa- false positive is not the word, but could someone fear like, oh my gosh, I have to go and it's probably going to be negative. So why bother? Because are they going to fear that there's too many alarm bells, so to speak, with the test coming back saying you should go see your doctor? We see both groups participating in this, which is exciting. Um, you know, I think that's, I would say again, that's why as far as being concerned about going in, there is, I feel like breast health in general can be a very anxiety producing um, process. And so we really try to communicate that what we're seeing is an elevation in these proteins. It could be something completely benign. And the important thing is to go in and screen and have your mammogram. You know, I think that's also what people forget about mammograms is mammograms don't tell you they have bre- that you have breast cancer. Mammograms tell you, hey, we see something. We just need to look at it some more. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, as a culture, we 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 pray on that that fear idea of we've got to get people in using fear, and and we're trying to move away from that and trying to get people in using information and motivation. I think the way to think of this, of course, is the fact that going from zero to mammography is a big lift for a lot of women for all the reasons we said previously. Yeah. And what um, Aria does is give you that mini step, like yep. let me take a baby step and see how that goes. And you just want to think of this as being a home-based test that allows you to have insight into clinically relevant events in your breasts. And those are things that you would like to know about to have the opportunity to make a decision about at the time that they're happening. So again, this is tapping into that ebb and flow of breast health. Can I tap into that and have that be transparent to me in a way that is convenient, that respects my dignity, allows me to carry on with my life, with my family, as as I have done previously. And I think that's where the ARIA test fits in really nicely. And, you know, this this conversation is also reminding me information is what is going to give us power. It is what's going to make us feel mm-hmm. empowered. And as you were talking and I could see like you, you do this test and you know that something may or may not be detected. If it is, talk to the people on your team to help guide the women through the process. And right there, I'm just like, yep, that's what empowered looks like. You know, whenever you're early in an innovation with a system that is terrible. I don't know what else we can say. It's it's a terrible healthcare system. And you'll see my passion is breaking the silos. And luckily, there's a lot of people who are in the right places. And so we're, we're trying to figure this out. But nonetheless, given where we are today, we know that you'd mentioned even that mammograms don't necessarily diagnose either. And so I now have this test, let's say it's go to the clinician and get the next set of tests done. Granted, I'm fortunate I have the ARIA team to educate me, but from a logistical perspective, based on the technology and knowledge that we have today, what are the next steps in that patient pathway? Yeah, I think the, the bigger way to think about the ARIA test is with more and more women being empowered in this way, they will have an opportunity to share all of those contributors that they feel are relevant to their breast health. Uh, because we alone as an individual will never find out what mattered most in terms of maintaining our breast health throughout the decades of our life. But when we partner with hundreds of thousands of other women, those types of um, you know, highly 
highly specific pieces of information rather than just saying you're supposed to be active. How active? I mean, where we have right. technology now that measures our activity. Give us some numbers that are relevant for Anna, for Georgie, for Brigitta. What are the numbers that are uh, important for each of us to ensure? We want to move away from this idea of on and off, where don't do anything until you get diagnosed and then kick into action. We as a community can collaborate in crowd-based ways using home collection testing to ensure that our data is safely and effectively shared amongst each other in ways that move the needle for each of us. And I think that it's part of this much bigger movement towards science no longer just relying on randomized controlled trials, you know, this model where everything stops moving and only one variable is allowed to move. That's not a model that is very representative of anybody's life. And so uh, as we move more and more using these technologies into understanding that ebb and flow of our health behaviors and their specific impacts on our health outcomes, that's going to be a crowd-based approach we're going to need everybody's participation. And the next generation really relies on us to participate in these models. If ever we're going to move away from this, you know, one in eight women with breast cancer, you you know, this massive amount of affecting women younger in, in their careers when they have young families, whatever is possible to be prevented should be prevented but it's not going to be prevented using just the technologies that we've used yesterday. We have to start participating in these crowd-based approaches that allow each of us to contribute our health expression in a science-based way that can be um, collected and explored across masses. Wow, I got chills. (laughs) No, I mean, it's um, as women, I think it's in our nature to want to help the greater good and that is so inspirational because now it's not just about what does my test say, but by me doing this test, I'm giving, this is more than getting a test. This is way more than that. This is, I'm now helping science better understand. And I would not be surprised if once you all get this perfected, that you will be expanding into other disease states. So if you haven't already thought about that, please, please, yes. The amount of information that you all can be capturing is quite remarkable. And and it's going to no longer just be sort of um, Namita lab capturing data. It's going to be we, the group, capturing our data and re- recognizing it and reviewing it on a regular basis mm-hmm. so that we'll all see not just our own test results, but everybody's test results that is anonymized, which is completely allowing us to understand what's happening into the in our group. Is our group in increasing our expression of breast cancer? Is our group decreasing our expression of breast cancer? And what are the contributors that are associated with this change of of outcome? So that none of that um, health expression goes to waste anymore. Today, you know, we're all going about our lives and our breast health expression is just evaporating. No one's capturing it. And now with these home-based tools, we have the ability to participate and capture this expression so that it doesn't go to waste, so that it does add incrementally to our understanding and to the science that we can then rely on to protect ourselves and each other. Why start with breast health? So the original work done by Suzanne so she was she was working in breast cancer. And why she was interested in doing that is in Arkansas, we have 
um, we have a pretty rural, we're a really rural state. And so she was having a lot of women coming in from South and East Arkansas who were stage four because simply because they did not have good access to breast screening. So they were, a lot of them are dependent on um, a mammo van that comes out from the med school that goes down into these areas. And so she wanted something that could be put into either sent directly to their home or could go into a local clinic where they could at least screen for something. And so that was really her passion in beginning to try to find something was to try to reduce the number of late stage breast cancers that she was seeing because she knew that there was an easy way to fix it, just how to get that developed and how to get that accessible and into the hands of women. The opportunity to move beyond breast cancer is huge. I think um, we've had some early data, Anna, that you might want to share regarding prostate cancer mm -hmm. and other cancers. We have early data in prostate. Um, we have work, we have samples for colon. We're very interested in ovarian as well. As you can imagine, those are a little bit more difficult to get those samples. Um, and then pancreatic cancer as well. So we have an interest in other areas that may not have good screening options. I can't wait. So now there's some other technologies that are out there for breast health, breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about those and then how ARIA may fit in with those as well? You know, a lot of the technologies that are coming out in breast health space, you know, there's a lot of genetic tests that you can do and um, that are recommended for assessing risk. And so really how we see ARIA is, you know, when we talk about genetic risk, that is your potential lifetime risk of something that could happen. And ARIA is looking at protein. So we are real, we call it a real time risk. So it's really going on in your tissue. So if you put your genetic risk together with your real time risk of what's happening and add that to imaging, that really gives you your full picture. So ARIA just kind of fits in there with other risk assessment technologies that are available. Um, and I believe that there are um, some other blood tests that are being developed, and those are more on the the, for the diagnostic end. So when you're, you know, if you have a um, an unclear mammogram, whether you're kind of in that six month, every six month screening waiting zone, they're really kind of fitting into that niche, which is needed as well as can we help reduce the number of women who fall into that um, undetermined come in every six months for two or three years before we decide if we need to do a biopsy or not. So that's a big area of technology and research as well. And so we, we're kind of in this early phase in that pre-screen. And so as far as we know, we're kind of alone in that area, but we do fit into a lot of the other work that's happening in breast health. In the future, we do expect that women should look at breast health as something that is assessed by hundreds of different attributes, not just, you know, the handful of things that we look at today. Oh, you're a, a woman of reproductive age, or you're a woman of menopause, and uh, here's your background risk, here's your family risk, let's make this decision. But really move into this model of here are hundreds of different attributes that de determine your risk profile at any point throughout the decades of your life. And that we have very highly specific, sophisticated models that allow you to understand that ebb and flow and ensure that you are not going to be, as Anna described, a, a woman in some rural part of Arkansas that's going to be showing up with a stage four. That we've had these, uh, you know, this period of time together for all of us to contribute our breast health expression in ways in which that every woman, regardless of how rural 
she happens to be, has access to the entire spectrum of crowd health expression that has pulled out what's relevant for her. You know, it's going to be interesting to listen to this episode a year or two later, because the innovations that may happen, I mean, even in the whole patient journey um, from diagnosis to treatment, I'm sure people are really tackling from all different angles. Um, It's going to be interesting to see where we are. So is there anything that I missed? One thing that, that we might just touch on is that history has taught us, you know, industry has taught us that health data is very, very valuable. And, um, you know, certainly the industry is generating uh, revenues based on health data alone. And, and part of this movement is a movement towards the individual participating in that economic benefit so that we are not just creating health data around our breast health for our own specific benefit from a health perspective, but also from an economic perspective. And so we see a future in which our um, you know, validated health data is something that we can use as an economic asset. This puts us into a sort of wealth creation model, because of course, all wealth creation comes on the back of new knowledge creation. And we as the participants of, you know, the sort of the co-creators of this new intelligence and this new wealth will enable a, a future of health data marketplaces that we as individuals would participate in and and industry would participate in as well. And so this is the future that we're looking at in which, you know, the ARIA test plays, the ARIA test and tests like ARIA play a huge role. And I think that um, just to share quickly, I've written a, a book with respect to this new era of wealth creation called Wealthcare. It's demystifying Web3 and the rise of personal data economies. That comes out in January and hopefully is written in such a way that the general consumer can begin to understand why Web3 matters, why personal data, personal health data matters, how this could create a future of not just better health, but better economic uh, situations for all of us. Can you give us like a one or two sentence on why it's actually a good thing to have and and maybe any fears that you could help allay? That would be helpful. Well, I think that the fears all sort of stem from what we now call Web 2, which is the traditional uh, Internet that we use, where we really had to rely on industry to own, control and manage our health data because it was way too much an ask for individuals. We None of us are tech savvy wizards. We're not going to be able to manage our individual health data ourselves. And what has happened, uh, though, is we've moved into an era where we have a whole set of new tools that we just put under the umbrella of Web3 and and an ethos under this umbrella of Web3 that makes it actually possible for Anna, Brigitte, Georgie to own, manage, and control our own health records through the use of some of these uh, Web3 technologies. It's not something that is easily discussed in one or two sentences, but that's why I was stuck uh, not being a writer, actually having to write a book. (laughs) It takes takes time to to go over this. Even with the investor education that I was involved in, we used to try to do investor education with an hour or two in the evening. It it turned into two-week boot camps. I can understand. But I guess the bottom line if someone is, uh, what I'm hearing is, I, as the patient, I'm still controlling it. Because I think when sometimes when people hear the word data, 
it's right away. It's like, hold on a minute, stop. Everyone's stealing my information. And, and now you're going to be calling me to get this test because now you have access to my data that says I have problem A, B, or C. Bottom line here is we're saying the, the patient owns their own data. What we're describing with respect to a future, which is Web3 oriented, is that now you as an individual have the ability to pre-approve the movement of your data at all times so that any data that you do not want to have moved in directions that you do not approve that can't it won't be possible given you know the built-in controls with the new tools okay so now that we've relaxed everyone who might be worried about data now the next question is how does one get a hold of the aria test Sure. So you can, the test can be ordered from our website at aria, A-U-R-I-A dot care, C-A-R-E. Um, you can click on the shop now button and it will take you directly through the ordering process. Awesome. Wow. This is so exciting. So any closing thoughts? Well, just the, the quick uh, thought that has come up many times through this conversation was get, get this idea of cancer being on or off out of our minds that we really need to think about. This is a balance throughout our lives, throughout the decades of our lives, that we actually have a lot to contribute to in terms of that ebb and flow of breast health throughout the decades of our lives. And thank goodness we see more and more technology that is coming into the household and home to help us with this. Yeah, and I think to that end also just, um, Georgie, for what you're mentioning about how information can be empowering, and that's really what what we want to do and what we want to provide you with. So when you go in for your, your breast health appointment that you already have information going in. And so it, it definitely gives you a leg up in that having that conversation and those conversations are important and um, breast health is important. And so we're just really excited to be able to offer something that can help empower women um, with more information when they go in. Wow. Such interesting science and so helpful. And, you know, this is really um, just the beginning for, the vision that you um, painted a picture of in this discussion. I mean, I, I am uh, really excited and hadn't thought of getting data in this way from women. I mean, I, I've seen it as a need through all the podcast interviews I've done, but to see that there is a concrete path forward um, is really exciting. So I can't wait to keep following you guys and seeing what's next. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah. And thank you for what you do, Georgie. It's great to get this information out to your audience.